Goldman Sachs, who in 2001 first termed the phrase the brick economies. But how time flies. In June this year, the fastest-growing developing economies of the world, Brazil, Russia, India and China, truly arrived when they met for their first official summit in Russia. They discussed how they can work together in the future and improve the current global economic situation. They also discussed reforming our financial institutions. But could the lessons of history have prevented the West from going into recession in the first place and, well, making all these mistakes that our competitors appear to have avoided? Dr David Chambers, a university lecturer in finance and deputy director of Judge Business School's Master of Finance programme, says crashes are difficult to predict and so, for that matter, are recoveries. Whenever we think about predicting uh, a crisis or a boom or a bust, um, there are always two dimensions we have to think about. So one is uh, what's the magnitude of of the crash or the crisis that's coming but the second is what the timing of that of that crisis is, and um, the latter in particular is extremely difficult. Um, one of my areas of research and uh, and personal interest are the investment activities of John Maynard Keynes. So Keynes, for example, uh, was an extremely active investor in the 1920s, and he didn't see. Uh, the great man himself didn't see the 1929 crash coming. He was heavily invested in the stock market. So if there are parallels with the crash of the 1930s, could we predict how long it may take us to get out of the current financial difficulties? Structural problems, Dr Chambers says, need to be faced up to. Oh, most certainly there, were, there, are, there are parallels. Um, so uh, one of the, the, the common features of this crisis and uh, what happened in the 1930s, which is why everyone tends to reach back to the, the period of the so-called Great Depression of the 1930s, is the severity of the economic downturn. Um, and the reason that this, is, uh, this occurred both then Uh, And it's occurred today, particularly in 2008, and so far what we've seen in in 2009, is that in both periods there was this devastating combination of a decline, an unexpected decline in prices, particularly asset prices, so that's both uh, stock market prices and real estate prices, the combination of this unexpected decline in prices and huge amounts of debt. This was a feature both of the recent past as a result of the subprime crisis, but also what happened in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. And when that happens, firms uh, and banks and consumers can lose confidence extremely rapidly and they start to worry about what's happening with the, the person or the, individ- the, the entity that they're trading with at the other end of a contract. And as a result of that, you can get massive contraction in credit markets. That's what we saw in the 1930s. That's what we saw in Japan again in the 1990s. And it's what we've seen yet again uh, in, this, in this most recent crisis. Um, as a result of that, then you get massive contraction in industrial and economic activity. Dr Chambers believes there may be a few false dawns along the road to recovery. When a crisis hits you like this, you really do have to concentrate on reflating the economy. Just The government has to step in and get the economy back moving again. And any concerns which might exist about unbalanced uh, 
government budget deficits or concerns about inflation starting to rise in the future have to be put to one side. Uh, I think that is, a, that is one lesson that truly has been learnt and one of the most admirable things about this current crisis is the way in which uh, governments, particularly led by the US and the UK, uh, did, did move extremely quickly to try and support economic activity. I think a lesson that's been less well learnt, on the other hand, is the fact that governments really do have to come clean about the extent of problems that existed or exist in the banking system. Uh, the governments of the 1930s, to some extent, could be excused of that because entities like the US Fed uh, were in their, very much in their infancy and didn't have the degree of control that they do today. Um, in the 1990s, the lesson was extremely painfully learnt by Japan because they delayed and delayed in telling people the truth about the extent of problems in their banks, uh, and that undoubtedly led uh, to uh, the, uh, the economic and financial crisis lasting much longer than anyone expected. Um, this time around, again, I think uh, the, the US uh, government has been slow to, to come clean, if you like, and have only really latterly recognised the need to do that with these stress tests that they've just put the US banks through. The European governments, excluding the UK, I think, in this case, are still in a state of denial and have not really yet got to the got to the point of embracing stress tests. The speed of this are we aren't we recovery from recession is says Dr Chambers unpredictable. The speed at which we may recover from here I think is uh, entirely unpredictable. Uh, and uh, that's for two reasons I think one is that the the extent of international cooperation that's required across governments uh, to continue to support their economies and to support the global economy is a challenge which I think is, is unprecedented in, uh, in, in recent financial and economic history. There are some questions which historians cannot answer in that, in that regard. Uh, and so th I think this is a real, a real undoubted challenge. Um, the other aspect uh, which, will, uh, which will affect the speed at which we recover I think, is that there's no doubt that levels of uh, risk aversion amongst investors uh, and businesses have, have increased uh, substantially. And this was, um, again, was a consequence of the, uh, of the period of the Great Depression of the 1930s. For a long time, it, it, so investors like Benjamin Graham, who was the, the famous value investor that emerged from the debris of the 1930s, he would only buy a stock if it ever traded for well below its book value. And this, this was uh, regarded as a rule of thumb in investing until well into the late 1950s. And it very much reflects the mentality that, uh, that you had to be very careful and very risk-averse in investing uh, and, and, and spending your money. And I think this is something, uh, this is a price I think we will pay coming out of this crisis and which may therefore well hold back the rate of recovery. Developing new markets during this global depression has never been more important. By 2050, the combined economies of the BRIC countries could eclipse the combined economies of the current richest countries of the world. Together they lay claim to more than a quarter of the world's land and to more than 40% of the world's population. Now that's what business terms an emerging market. But how do you build a global brand? 
Morris Levy is chairman and CEO of the Publicis Group. He should know. He's built one. Today, my vision is something which is shared by most advertisers and most advertising agencies. But when I started to think about globalization, I thought that uh, the idea of having a global campaign, homogenized uh, approach with uh, something which is... uh, uh, exactly the same for all the countries, all the people of the world, whatever has been their past, their culture, their relationship, is something which uh, will not last. And uh, maybe based on the fact that uh, France is a peculiar country and that we were very much attached to our exception culturelle, I thought that uh, most of the people in the world must uh, like to go back to their roots, must like to hear uh, the song uh, that their moms were singing for them and not something which was coming from uh, a kind of uh, 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 factory uh, coming from the U.S. or any other part of the world. So it was based purely on cultural differences. And that communication has to take the roots in the people's soul, mind, hearts, and their cultural differences, while at the same time the brands have to have a common concept. So it's something which is... uh, 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 which was maybe looking in the mid-90s as something a little bit intellectual, but which is now uh, commonplace. If you look at Coca-Cola or Nike, they are not uh, showing this global campaign which was monstrous, but something which is specific to each country. So even with huge emerging global markets, it seems the consumer desires brands which are local. Morris Levy again. One day I was thinking about uh, how the world was changing. And when you look at the world and how it is changing, in fact, you see that uh, everything around yourself is changing. The way we are building our roads, the airports, transportation, uh, the stores which are sold, etc. And what's left are a few brands which are a little bit like... uh, landmarks which are showing you the way, the pathway to um, consumption life. But at the same time, there is a relationship between the brand and, uh, uh, and yourself. And uh, there, are a, a connection, there is a connection, there is a relationship, there is a kind of, uh, uh, in French I would say, affection, but... Uh, I'm not sure it's the right word in English, but let's say feelings, let's say relationship. Uh, and I believe that uh, love mark is a, it's a great concept because uh, when you love someone, you accept that is not perfect. And loving a brand, you accept that the brand is not always perfect. You accept uh, difficulties of time, the fact that the brand has not the latest innovation. You give permission to the brand to do not, to not be always at the top. And that is great because uh, a brand cannot be always at the top. 
and it seems the publicist group practices what it preaches. The agency has grown and well grown globally in the face of fierce competition. Hunger in an emerging market is all it seems. Maurice Levy. Publicis is、um, today number three, number four worldwide, with、uh, roughly forty-five thousand people. Uh, in um, uh, the nineties,、uh, we were、uh, about five thousand people, maybe maybe six.、Uh, we were number fifteen or sixteen on a worldwide stage. And、uh, we were present only in uh, European countries,、uh, with a small outpost in New York.、Uh, we had almost no global client. We had regional, global companies who were giving us regional work for Europe, and、uh, we we had to earn、uh, our position on the podium. And、uh, in this field, which is very competitive, where there are some、uh, very fierce competitors, very tough, very talented, it, it was、uh, very difficult. And I think that what has really helped us is that we were bringing new ideas, a new concept of globalization. I spoke about already a, a new approach to branding. A new way of doing integrated communication, which we call holistic, and、uh, people, our clients, felt that we had a formidable anger to win and hunger to help them. So they. Felt that we were committed, that we wanted to succeed, that their brand was very important to us, and they saw in the, our creative people, our planners, in their eyes the sparkle of ideas, and this is something which was absolutely fantastic because we were and we are real people, fully committed to our clients, and they felt it. But growth should not be achieved by sacrificing your core values. A growing global brand has to keep its soul, whoever it acquires. Levy again. Being a global company is、uh, like being pregnant. You can't be half pregnant. So you cannot say to a client, "Listen, I can serve you globally, but I can't serve you in Asia or I can't serve you in Latin America." But in five years' time, I will. This doesn't work. If they give you the account, you have to service this account all around the world. So on almost day one,、uh, in a very limited period of time, we had to acquire something like thirty or forty agencies all around the world in、uh, less than two years. And、um, I was going to the countries, trying to find the best、uh, operation, which we are not yet sold, and I call them the resistant because、uh, they were. Very often, very creative, very good, led by mavericks, and they had refused to sell their operation. And what I was offering to them is to be mavericks with us, and that they had to contribute to the globalization. They had to benefit from the globalization, and the only way for them to do that was to be aligned with a global network. But one of the way to do that.
was to be with us because they will not sell their soul. But do the BRIC countries really share that much in common beyond their emerging markets? Critics would say not really. China and India are manufacturing-based economies and big importers, while Brazil and Russia are huge exporters of natural resources. Moreover, Brazil and India have growing populations, while China and Russia have shrinking populations. So if the West wants to go into these markets, what should companies do and what pitfalls should they avoid? Jared Tellis is the Neely Chair of American Enterprise and Director of the Centre for Global Innovation at the Marshall School of Business, USC. What we found is closeness helps, but it's not closeness geographic as closeness culturally uh, and uh, closeness in economics factors. So, for example, the US uh, uh, is uh, nearly as far geographically from Singapore and India. However, uh, in economic distance, it's much closer to Singapore because Singapore has adopted the U.S. model and has translated very much to a U.S. system, Well, as India is very far from a U.S. model. So it's the economic distance and the cultural distance uh, which, may, which is a factor, not the geographic distance. Jared Tellis says cultural distance and economic distance from the emerging market you're entering has a huge impact on your success in that market. Cultural distance is a very important factor because uh, companies have been rushing to enter India and China and one of the things they might overlook is uh, they are coming from completely different cultures. And what we find is the greater the culture uh, between the host and the home country, uh, the bigger the pitfall and the more likely uh, a company is going to make mistakes. Time of entry also determines success. The later you enter, the lower your chance of success. Jared Tellis. If you enter early, uh, you are able to shape consumer preferences as well as tie up distributors, as well as um, uh, get, uh, get ahead of competitors. And for all of these reasons, you might do well. On the other hand, if you come in late, you can learn from the mistakes made from the early entrance, as well as learn from the success, as well as use new technology. So there are factors which might favor early entry and there are factors which might favor late entry. And so what, how entry affects success is an empirical issue which we looked into. And also, if you enter later, you've got more competitors, I suppose. Yes, and as you enter later uh, over time, uh, competition also increases, especially the competition increases because of the deregulation. Over time in India and China, both countries have been deregulating and the number of local as well as multinational corporations have increased and therefore competition has gotten stiffer. And as the markets in the new emerging economies open up, success is not necessarily guaranteed. You have to make the right decision at the right time. Here are some tips for success. Tell us. We look at success as what we call a dependent variable, and there are a bunch of uh, independent variables, uh, time itself, the regulatory environment, the mode of entry, whether controlled or not, uh, the cultural distance, the economic distance, these are all independent variables. And in order to control for them simultaneously to see which one is more important, we run what we call a regression model, regressing uh, success on all of these factors simultaneously. Then the question I have to ask you next is, what are those five secrets 
of success if you as a company want to enter an emerging market in China or India? Well, uh, the biggest uh, factor we found is uh, control. Uh, the more you control your own organization, the more you rely on your secret formula of success and your parent organization's culture and experience, the better you do. So uh, the question is, why wouldn't firms do that? And the reason is that when they tried to enter India and China, in the early years, both India and China had a lot of regulations, and therefore they restricted the mode of entry, and they required that you enter through an alliance or a joint alliance or a franchise. And so companies lost uh, control. And what we found is the more control you have, the better your success. Mm -hmm.